Okay, greetings everyone. Welcome back, those of you on Zoom, those of you who are alive as we continue our series in Jewish history. So we're working our way towards the development of the state, the founding of the state of Israel. We've been focused a lot on the land of, the, of Palestine uh, post-World War I in the 20s, uh, the world of Jewish uh, European Jewry, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, but we need to spend an evening talking about American Jewry in the 1920s. Um, the focus of our attention, of course, of the entire course and really of the entire Jewish world during the time period that we're in is now in the land of Palestine. I mentioned many times in, in terms of Jewish history, when you read uh, any book on Jewish history, so uh, there are certain events or certain places, certain eras which are more important than others as far as Jewish history goes. Russia has a, plays a main role during certain stages in England and France, but no one city is the most important city in Jewish history. Maybe it has instances, but... When we focus on the land of Palestine from the beginning of the 1900s, that's really the center of all of Jewish history, really runs through the land of Palestine. European Jewry post-World War I is an absolute disaster, literally. It's devastated, it is impoverished, it is dispersed, it is a mess, uh, which hopefully we'll talk a little bit about um, maybe in future weeks. But during this time, despite the fact that the land of Palestine is really the centerpiece, American Jewry is going to emerge as a major player um, on the scene. It will soon become the largest in numbers, uh, the American Jewish community. There will be over, and the most influential, there will be over 4.5 million Jews already by the mid-1920s will already be in the land of Israel. Uh, they first arrive on the American shores in the 1880s and then in successive waves uh, throughout the 1900s, all the way through the 1920s. We mentioned already last week or two weeks ago, there were a number of immigration acts, which we'll touch on later, 1921 and 1924, which severely limited immigration. But the Jews were coming in... Uh, in waves. Most of them are, by, by our uh, decade that we're going to be focused on, the 1920s, most are really still foreign-born. We're talking about people who immigrated themselves. Their own children are still very, very young. And as foreigners, they are still self-conscious and they're still very wary about foreign governments. The Jewish people have a long history in exile and despite promises of equality and despite promises of a non-discriminatory uh, treatment, there is always a, uh, a weariness of uh, the Golden and Medina, as it was referred to, of... Uh, of, of, of coming, to these, uh, coming to these shores. What defines the era, the, gen the generation of the early Jews who came, this is again pre-World War II, these are the people who came before that, what's going to define them, as we'll see, is really the desire to achieve social acceptance and upward mobility. It is going to be an assimilated group of Jews who is going to try to integrate into this new society. Those two ideas, Social acceptance, upward mobility were almost never afforded to the Jews in most of Europe. As Europe became enlightened, it was certainly more possible, certainly in Germany and in some of the other countries, but where they were coming from, where the Jews were coming from, from Russia, from Poland, that idea of becoming really part of culture and part of society was not necessarily afforded to most of the Jewish population at the time. And that will really drive the Jewish community as a whole as they become completely engulfed in the roaring 20s and are going to become major, major players uh, in it. There's sheets uh, right over here. One of the most sobering statistics that comes out of this is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are about four and a half million Jews that will be in America by the mid-1920s. That number is a very sobering statistic because 
75, 80 years later, there are still, how many Jews are there now in America? We still number between six, seven, eight million in that general range, which is an increase of barely a fifth from the numbers of the 1920s. The American population as a whole has doubled since that time. And the Jewish population did not have that same growth. And that is without any pogroms, without any Holocaust, without any inquisition, the number simply did not grow, and it's simply a statement of the ravages of assimilation and low birth rates. And that is a very, very sobering number, of the, uh, which really defines, almost in a way, the, the tragedy and travesty of the American Jewish population uh, as a whole. Now today, uh, Jews in the United States of America live as they have lived in almost no other country in the history of Jewish exile. What we, are, we take for granted, and I say American, obviously, obviously including the Canadian Jewish community as well, obviously. But uh, the, the freedoms and opportunities and protections that the Jewish community is given is really unparalleled. Even the golden age of Spain did not have to the degree that the Jew has today living in North America did not, simply just didn't have it. Equality before the law is absolute and complete, which is something we all take for granted. But it, it, Jewish history is not filled with examples of places where a Jew can live and expect and demand complete and total equality before the law. Overt government anti-Semitism. Overt you, you won't find. You just, now, covert, yes, there is still aspects, and no one is going to whitewash or pretend with rose-colored glasses that there is no anti-Semitism on these shores. That's certainly not accurate. We all know that. But official, government-sanctioned anti-Semitism does not, uh, almost completely non-existent. Now, what the Jews did discover when they arrived is the idea of covert, snide, bigoted anti-Semitism, which is very strong in certain areas and in certain parts of the country. Um, it, it existed then, it exists now, but it's certainly not what you were coming from in Poland or in, in, in Russia. And through their drive and value of education and just their drive to succeed, Jews have really, since they've come to these shores, been able to raise themselves up in terms of both wealth and influence in society to the degree that even a religious Jew, again, the majority, overwhelming majority of Jews in North America are assimilated secular Jews, but even a religious Jew can completely function today in American society in almost any position. There's almost no official job out there that's not open to a Jew outside of, let's say, you want to play college football, okay, you're going to get stuck. You want to be a professional sports player, you got to, and even that, there are always people pushing borders, pushing limits boundaries to be able to see what can be done. But professionally speaking, there are absolutely from doctors, lawyers, you name it, it can be done. Judges, it's, it's, uh, it's available in a way that we, again, take for granted that observance is no longer an impediment to success. And we like to think that it's always been that way, even in America. And the truth is, it's not that way. That's a relative, relatively new way that you, anything and everything is completely open to, uh, to the Jew. So let's, uh, let's take a look at what some of the factors that the Jews who arrived in the early 1900s through the 1920s, some of the things that they faced which then shaped the American Jewish community, which will lead us into how they reacted and responded, of course, to the Holocaust and the founding of the state, which will, this is all setting us up for, uh, for that. So immigrants generally found themselves at the bottom of the totem pole, you, as is the case still today. Whenever you immigrate to a new country, uh, that's what happens. 
Uh, all, uh, many of my friends, colleagues who have made Aliyah, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing if you speak to people who moved. No matter what they had accomplished in wherever they came from, in Europe, in America, in Canada, when you move to Israel, you're starting from the, from the ground. You're starting from the bottom. In whatever field you're in, you're an immigrant, you don't speak the language, you don't have the training, you don't have the experience, and whether or not it's in the field of education and chinuch, I know I have many colleagues who were esteemed principals of big schools with massive budgets who make Aliyah and they're like first level, first year teaching, getting the worst class and the worst schedule. It's just the way that it goes and it's in many other fields, almost every other field as well. So when the immigrants came to the States, it's the same thing. The economic situation in that era was not necessarily great and they came into a land that had a lot of bigotry and a lot of discrimination. Um, not necessarily, again, the overt anti-Semitism of the Russian czars or the Polish peasants, but it was, uh, as we said, a lot of jokes, a lot of slurs, a lot of name-calling. It was not necessarily always safe on the streets, and they were certainly not always able to get good jobs. They were not able to enroll in universities. Uh, there were certain clubs they were certainly, as Jews, excluded from. They could not buy properties in certain areas and engage in certain types of businesses. This practice of keeping Jews out existed all the way through in many places, the 50s and the 60s, where there were still signs, you can see, no Jews allowed to buy in certain areas and certain properties. My in-laws live in an area in uh, Long Island. The, the town, just like one or two towns over, had an official policy not to allow Jews buy there until literally 20, 30 years ago. And now it became, of course, completely Jewish because that's the sense of humor that both God and the Jewish people have. Um, and there are many towns, many towns that are like that until today, in which you could just go back 30, 40 years of history, not going back to the 1920s, not even that far back. And uh, it was not simple for Jews to be in, in every place. And that was certainly true in, in the U.S. And there are many, many stories of how certain industries were created by Jews who were left out of many other opportunities. So since they didn't have, they created their own. Many Jewish hospitals, many Jewish law firms, many industries were founded by Jews who could not get into the old white boy Protestant uh, network. They weren't allowed in. They started their own. And um, that is the reality. One of the issues that they had to deal with um, uh, let me just, one other comment on that was the, the reaction that we're going to see to Jews of world Jewish events. How did the American Jewish community respond to that is very much shaped by the circumstances and the society that they were, they were in and how they wanted to very much uh, fit in. They had a number of challenges. Let's just go through again. We can't, each one of these topics really deserves uh, a, a class unto itself. Well, let's just skim the top of, uh, to paint a picture a little bit of what it was like. Shabbos observance is one of the most, uh, one of the most famous. When the Jews came primarily which they, where they arrived to in New York, the six-day work week was the given situation. You worked from uh, Monday through Saturday, including Saturday, and yet your one day off was Sunday. Sunday was your church day, but the other six days a week, you were absolutely required to, uh, to work. Now, for a uh, Shomer Shabbos old country Jew who arrived as an immigrant from wherever they came from, from Russia, from Poland, from Germany, um, and that was not an issue. They were Shomer Shabbos. They lived in a little shtetl in Europe. They worked in the little shtetl. It was, uh, you were a tailor, you were a seamstress, you, were, uh, you sold dry goods, whatever you did in your shtetl. So you closed up on Shabbos. You come to the new Golden Medina, and uh, now you got to work in a factory somewhere, and the factory expects you to be there on Saturday. 
That created, as is well documented, a tremendous amount of pressure on the immigrant Jews who were now literally in this new world, new environment that they found themselves in. The financial pressures were very real. It is uh, not fair to talk about this era and say, eh, there were Jews who weren't Shomer Shabbos without acknowledging the pressure that they were on uh, under to feed their families, literally to feed their families. We think now the, the Jewish community today overall is generally a very affluent community as a whole in terms of um, the ability that we have as a, as, as a whole to take care of ourselves, to support ourselves, not to say that there's not poverty, we know that there is, and there are many organizations which help address that. But as a whole, it's an affluent, uh, as an affluent community. But as a whole, it was not. And when, when you had pressures and you needed to feed a family and if you were gonna lose your job, that was a real, very real pressure. And of course, that only gets worse with the depression in the late 1920s in which that uh, you know, is indescribably worse than the, the, the average situation. The social pressures on the immigrants to move, moving in was also very real. Not only on the immigrants themselves to try to blend in and become American, but for their children, it was even worse. The children who didn't, uh, who didn't have the old country experience and they really wanted to blend in, so to be part of a Shomer Shabbos home when that wasn't what was going on around was a tremendous amount of, uh, tremendous amount of pressure. This was, it had a devastating effect, uh, effect on the religious community, the idea of being able to maintain uh, their Shabbos observance. Of course, there are many, many famous stories of the Jews who who uh, withstood this test, who were able to, as a famous saint, saint would go, if you don't show to work on uh, Saturday, don't bother coming on, on Monday. And the Jew who would regularly lose his job, it's impossible to go back, maybe not impossible, maybe researchers can say, whether or not that, act, how often that actually happened and whether or not there were people who literally went from week to week they would work one week in a job and then they'd have to go. But it clearly happened. There's no question about it that a Jew knew that he was at risk of losing his job if he didn't show up on Saturday. And so for, their, for many, there was not an option. It was, it was simply not an option. For many, there were many who, uh, who, who stood very strong in their tradition and there were many who uh, did not. Very fascinating historical note is that the origin of the Hashkama minion which today, if you say Ashkama Minyan, that's usually referred to as the most pious who want to get up early and daven and then learn for a couple hours before they eat lunch. The origin of the American Hashkama Minyan is the idea of the Jew who needed to go to work on Saturday. And how's he going to daven? So he would daven early at 6 o'clock in the morning, finish by 8, and he was at work by 8.30. And that's what, that was how he lived. He would daven in the morning and he'd go to work. I didn't have a choice. And so for the Jew who needed to work on Shabbos, he had Hashkama Minyan, which is the great irony of how things develop. You know, like that, you think of Hashkama Minyan attendee today, and you would claim that the reason why they're dominating Hashkama is because they need to go to work in the afternoon. You know, that's the exact opposite of the general type of attendee who goes. But uh, that was the, that was the Nisayim. That was the big test of that, uh, uh, of that uh, era. It had a, and uh, Shabbos has always been the cornerstone of Jewish practice. It has always been the cornerstone of the Jewish faith and of transmitting tradition from a generation from one to the next. And it, the effect on the religious community of the fact that here in the, in the, on the shores of the U.S., uh, that was such a major uh, ordeal for so many families, uh, certainly had a massive effect over the years on the Jewish community, uh, which is, again, overwhelmingly secular and not religious in, uh, in the United States. Uh, the other major issue, and, uh, and another major issue, is the idea of the melting pot. The, the famous American example of how they integrated immigrants into society was the melting pot. You throw it all into the pot and you get a big cholent that, uh, when it comes out. 
And that was a defining characteristic, a defining principle. You come in here as a German, you come in as an Irish, Italian, as a Pole, but you leave, or as a Jew, you leave it all aside, and you're going to come out of the pod as an American. Uh, and usually when, when you go through that process, so it's in effect discarding everything that you brought in that made you unique as whatever it was that you came, and then you come out as this new uh, Amer- American. This entire public school system was really built on this uh, concept. Um, and even in uh, schools which had a huge or overwhelmingly Jewish population, the teachers might have been Jewish, everybody was Jewish. But here in America, we sing the Christmas carols, and you participate in Halloween, whatever goes in, because we're becoming American, the value of that. Um, the day school system, which we know today, which is uh, so strong, uh, did not yet exist to the same degree, certainly not. And the idea of Hebrew school, which did exist, that, which is an old, old concept, which was really borrowed from the Christian schools. They would do the same thing. They would send their kids to public schools, and then they would have a religious school. So the Jews, of course, did the same thing. That idea uh, has never really been uh, successful. The idea of taking a kid, you know, take, think about it from a child's perspective. Like, I go to school, I go to public school, do whatever I do, and now I need to do something else. Like, uh, who wants to go back to school every Tuesday night and every Sunday morning? So it, it, uh, it never really had a, a great success, even today where it still exists. You know, the, the, I, I have heard from many people in, um, in Kirov, on college campuses and elsewhere, is like the, the way they speak about, like the greatest way to des- destroy a Jewish soul is, you know, send them to Hebrew school so that they hate everything about Judaism from the moment they walk in. You know, the, the ch- if you get somebody in college who's never been to Hebrew school, we have a chance with them. If they went to Hebrew school, it's like, oh, forget it. They're going to think they know everything and they're going to hate it already before you even start. So obviously that's uh, tongue-in-cheek. I hope that's not completely true. Uh, certainly not, but uh, there's... Behind every joke, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of truth. So in any case, so that was the educational system. Everybody went to public school, and the public school's agenda was make you American. That's the, uh, that's the goal. Now, um, part of that was that the old-time Jews, with their European accents, were viewed as a whole by the, by the, by the society as uh, anachronisms. They were out of step with reality. They're from the Altaheim. They don't speak the language. They don't understand what's going on. And so the Greeners, particularly to their children, they were an embarrassment. They were an embarrassment to the country. They didn't know the sports scene. They didn't know the culture. They didn't know anything. And so here they were running from wherever they were running from, from Russia, from Poland, from Germany. Um, and uh, they came into this melting pot and they didn't want to maintain that. It wasn't a value uh, as, a, as a whole. And since, since education was in the American value system the ticket to success, to become a professional, so the Jews thrived on education. So that was a major value that fit right in. And so uh, many, many, many Jews went you know, hook, line, and sinker into that uh, approach, education, you get a nice job, and you'll uh, integrate uh, into, uh, into the American uh, culture. Another issue was the general insecurity in a new strange land. There had never been a place like this before. The Jew knew Poland, the Jew knew Russia, they understood. And they came to America and it was nothing like they had ever really known before. Now today's Jew, today's Jew is very secure and very American. That's the real, we, we take that as a given that the, uh, that the American Jewish identifies as a very American and very secure in being Jewish. Like, I have rights, you can't, the, uh, they, they walk the streets proudly as, uh, 
as Jews in the EU, certainly in the religious community. But, uh, and even religious Jews are much more familiar with American culture than they might even realize or ever admit to. It's just part of the world that they uh, grow up in. You can note that there's kosher food, there are minyanim at major sporting events, and you think, like, a, a religious Jew from Poland or Russia could, would not believe you if you would tell them that there would be a minion at uh, you know, a World Series game. Like, like, why would there be a minion at a World Series game? Like, because that they're Jews that they're going, okay, they're Jews who lost their way. They're Jews who want to daven mincha marv at, like, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. But that's, of course, like, what? Of course there's a minion out there. Like, why? like wouldn't, shouldn't there be a minion? Shouldn't there be kosher food? That's, uh, that's, that's how secure the, the community today is. But that was, not, that was not necessarily the case where a, a Jew felt very secure in his uh, Jewishness. They very much did not want to appear too Jewish. There was a lot, again, of political cartoons and caricatures where very much you were the immigrant and you didn't fit in. Now, the Jewish community now is not the immigrant anymore. They've been here 50, 60, 70 years. Grandparents were born here already. So I'm American. That guy's the immigrant. But we were that guy in when we first came, who was uh, the immigrant, didn't speak the language, had the accent, didn't understand, and therefore did not want to appear too Jewish or advocate too loudly for Jewish issues. He just sort of wanted to figure out how to blend in. One of the great examples of this is the last name changes. There's a fascinating story. There's a, a, a myth out there, a famous, famous myth, that when the Jews used to arrive at Ellis Island, they would be given all sorts of last names by whoever it was that uh, checked them in. And that's why there's different names and different spellings and all things got mixed up. It's a very, very famous myth. Everybody knows that story that when the Jews came to Ellis Island, they got whatever name the person you know, decided uh, to give them. However, they would try to pronounce their name and if they misheard them, that's what they uh, got. They, they tell the famous joke. I, I'm not sure you've all heard this joke, but it's like the most famous joke on this particular topic of the, the Jew who came. His name was Yerachmiel Yankalovich. And so they told him the whole time, when you get to the States, you can't be Yerachmiel Yankalovich. That's, you, that's just not going to work. You're going to be like Jimmy uh, Smith. So when you get to Ellis Island, you tell him your name is Jimmy Jimmy Smith, this poor Yid is from coming over from Russia. He's trying to remember the name. Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith. So the whole boat ride, he's thinking to himself, Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith. My name is Jimmy Smith. So uh, he gets to Ellis Island, and uh, the person says, Newt, what's your name? And he freezes. He can't remember. He says, Newt, your name, sir. He says, I shine for guessing. Sean Ferguson, welcome to the United States. And that's how the Jews became known as uh, God name. Totally false. It's a made-up story. When, when there's been much, many, a couple of books have been published recently. The, the officers at Ellis Island, besides for speaking several languages, and were very well versed with German and Russian and Polish, they always took the name. You needed to have documents. You either had a, you had the manifesto from the ship, you had a passport, you had papers. If, there's, if, if a Jew snuck in illegally, it's okay, maybe he made up his name. That's fine. But the, anyone who came in legally is a total myth that whatever he said verbally is what became his name. There was a paper, there was a document, it was matched off of the manifesto. So maybe if in Russia or in Poland he made something up, but that's what got onto the manifesto. But it didn't happen in Ellis Island. That has been, uh, is almost completely false. The reason why Jews changed their names is because they anglicized it to fit in. And we have many records. I have a, a we actually had him here speak uh, one of our Rosh Hashanah not long ago, Rabbi Pinchas Landis. He's now in Cleveland. Uh, grew up in, uh, in Atlanta, not far from where uh, I was for many years. So his name was, I think, uh, what did he say? L- Linetsky or something like that. And it became Landis. 
So he, said, he, wrote, he wrote an article recently about this. People ask, are you related to this Landis? Are you related to that Landis? He said, no, not related to any Landises because it's a total made-up name. My family name is actually, whatever it was, Lef- Lef- maybe Lefkowitz, I think he said it was, Lefkowitz. And we have records that in 1940-something, my grandfather's older brother, uh, my, his great-grandfather's older brother, didn't like being known as Lefkowitz. He identified him as a Jew. He didn't want to be identified as a Jew. So he took the name Landis. We have the record of where he applied to have it changed. And when he changed it, everybody in the family changed it. And so by the time my grandparents came, my grandfather, he was a Landis. It was not changed at Ellis. It was willingly changed by the Jew himself to anglicize it. And we have many records of that happening. It happened much later than when they got to Ellis Island. And that was all part of not being identified as a very clear, clearly identified Jew. And the Jew didn't want to be identified as a, uh, as a Jew. This idea will manifest itself, unfortunately, in the Holocaust. The American Jewish community was not in a position themselves to want to make it an agenda. It was still not yet comfortable, as we'll see uh, when we get up to this, to pursue an agenda that was anything but American. An American agenda, yes, but to, be, to pursue a Jewish agenda uh, really did not. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine brings uh, an incident from Samuel Rosenman, who was uh, Roosevelt's uh, speechwriter during the war years. So he was a Jew. So a group of Orthodox Jews approached him to, uh, to get the president's attention during the war years. And he responded that not only would he not help them get even an appointment, he said, don't even dare bring this up. He said, the president is busy with important war matters. We cannot voice this upon him. You're going to bring a Jewish issue? We, we, we can't do that. It's, it's just not, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't done. Another major issue during this time period is the conservative movement. Uh, the conservative movement, which is an exclusively American phenomenon. It's really uh, unique to the American church. Of course, now it's spread, but it was really an American phenomenon. It was a perfect example of a Jew in the American culture trying to adapt to what they saw as the future of how an, a Jew can survive in this, uh, in this golden Medina. It began earlier, already in 1898, with uh, Solomon Schachter, who was an Eastern European Jew, was a Talmudic scholar. Um, he was actually very famous for his work on the Cairo Geniza in 1898 as well, um, <coughs> which is a very, very famous work, which uh, shed a lot of light on a lot of things. Um, and he created the modern rabbinic seminary that would combine the best of Western culture, eventually moves to the States, and is offered the position of the JTS, the Jewish uh, Theological Seminary, which is, and he then creates the, a seminary that's going to combine the secular world with the traditional understanding of Jewish sources. He was going to make an all-American rabbi. He was going to take this new culture that we had found themselves in and combine it with uh, traditional Judaism because... Orthodoxy had no future in, on these shores. There was no way that Orthodoxy was possibly going to survive in, in such a country, which just simply wasn't, wasn't set up. And in Europe, of course, the, the Rabbanim in Europe didn't refer to America as the Golden of Medina. They referred to it as the Trefa Medina. It was just not a place for a religious Jew. And they were right. It was not a place for a religious Jew. It wasn't set up yet. It did not have the infrastructure. So the, the, the community, the rabbis, realized, there's no way orthodoxy is going to survive. But reform, which had been around for a while already, had totally lost its way. They were reforming everything. So conservative movement was going to conserve. It was going to uh, conserve that which it could given the circumstances of the American scene and the American culture in which it was being uh, developed. 
So since, again, orthodoxy doesn't have a future, and it really was unimaginable at that time if one would have been able to show a Jew living in 1925 what 2025 will look like, or even 2021 right now, they would not believe there's such a place called Lakewood, New Jersey. There's, there's no way. There's a Brooklyn. There's just no way that this has developed the way that it has. It just it wasn't on anyone's radar screen that that would be possible. So, so uh, Solomon Schachter, uh, re- recognizing that, uh, was going to create a movement that would conserve or save that which could be saved. I want to read you his, uh, a piece we'll read together from his inaugural address as the president of the Jewish Theological Seminary in eight, 1902. If you were just to close your eyes and listen to us and say, like, who gave this speech? You would never have guessed it was the founder of the conservative movement. He said as follows. This is his inaugural speech. On the top of page three. Judaism is not a religion which does not oppose itself to anything. Like we have this very clear understandings. In particular, Judaism is opposed to any number of things and says distinctly, thou shall not. It permeates the whole of your life. It demands control over all of your actions and interferes even with your menu. It sanctifies the season and regulates your history, both in the past and the future. Above all, it teaches that disobedience is the strength of sin. It insists upon the observance of both the spirit and of the letter. Spirit without letter, just to say, this is the spirit of the law, I'm not actually keeping it. If you do that, he said, that belongs to a species known to the mystics as nishmatim artilein, like a new, meaning a disrobed soul, wandering about in the universe without balance and without consistency. In a word, Judaism is absolutely incompatible with the abandonment of the Torah. That was his inaugural address as a president of the JTS. The conservative movement has been down a slippery slope for almost 100 years now, and I don't know if that same speech would be given today, but that was the opening inaugural address. And for a long time, a long time, it was clear that the conservative movement was going to completely take over American Jewry. That, it was obvious. It's, a, it's one of the major, many miracles, I would say, of the survival of Torah Judaism that without question, a Jew in the 1950s would have said, orthodoxy has no future, it's not possible, and the conservative movement is the way to go. Uh, the, its central body, the United Synagogue, was the leading Jewish body in terms of wealth, in terms of power. It had a popular radio program and publications, large synagogues throughout the country. Great scholars were in its seminary. Saul Lieberman, uh, Avram Yoshua Heschel. People themselves were tradition-oriented. They were observant. And they, they, were, they wrote shuvas. They wrote responses to questions. To, to, it, was a, it was a very learned, and that was the way of the future. It, what it did, however, was create a very slippery slope. Um, in its original form, the movement was very high. I don't know, Vera Wine estimates 99%. I, I think that's just a phrase. It was like almost completely uh, traditional. And as time went on, and the American culture became more and more secular, so to try to hold on to this balance, you had to become more and more secular to, to meld together with the environment around you. Um, and so while the fad until the 40s and 50s was Orthodox shuls turning conservative, there are many, uh, many stories of Rabbanim in this period of time, 40s, 50s, even 60s, of rabbis of shuls who left their shul because the shul went, uh, the shul went conservative. 
they, the, the famous joke they tell, lots of famous rabbinic jokes. I, I don't remember this if I'm going to say this exactly, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but hopefully the idea will, will, uh, will come across. Of, uh, of a small little shtetl, shul somewhere, the Orthodox shul. And, uh, you know, as was the wave of the future, they decided they wanted to, uh, to go conservative, and they were going to remove the mechitza. So shortly thereafter, the, uh, the rabbi came in and he asked for a significant raise. He'd been making a salary, whatever it was, in $20,000. He wanted $75,000. Oh, shtetl, a little town in Yopitzville. $75,000, rabbi, what, what? He said, listen, before I was a rabbi of an Orthodox shul. So okay, you get a small little salary, but now I'm the rabbi of a conservative shul. Like, well, you can't pay me the same. I'm sure that's a butcher joke, but the bottom line is that, that was the wave. That's what was happening. The rabbis were leaving shuls. Those who uh, didn't want to be by there, the shul was turning conservative. Those were the votes that were taking place. Should we stay orthodox? Should we stay conservative? We take votes now on really important things like should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Because they were voting on, you know, the, on, on where, the, where the shul should be. And uh, the amazing thing again is uh, 40, 50, 60 years later, the exact opposite has literally reversed itself in which uh, by all the students, you, know, you don't need a Pew study to tell you that the conservative movement is in uh, very big trouble. And uh, orthodoxy in the U.S. is a uh, very, very strong and growing um, uh, constituency of the, uh, of the Jews. It's still a major minority of the Jews as a whole, um, but, uh, but that, that, it has literally reversed itself. I, this is just a small anecdote, and I can't say that it's indicative of it in general. There happens to be, there was a, a posting that I just saw of a, a, a shul in New Jersey uh, looking to hire a rav. They had been conservative, and they say, we're switching, we're going, we can't survive as a conservative shul, so they're going orthodox and looking to, to start again in a small town in New Jersey. I, I, that might be an outlier, I don't know how often that's happening. But, um, but uh, orthodoxy is alive and well, and nobody would have predicted that um, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Let's talk a little bit about the Orthodox community as it was in the 20s. Um, it was very European in character. That's where they came from. They came from those who were uh, Orthodox from, uh, of course, Russia, Poland, and elsewhere. Yiddish was the language. And uh, the lifestyle of the shtetl really governed its society. That they just picked up the shtetl and they came. There were small pockets of, of uh, the, again, the overall majority of the Jews uh, were, were uh, assimilating. But there was, of course, always the Orthodox uh, presence. Yeshivas were, of course, the pride of this very stubborn minority who had great confidence in Orthodox life. And there were a number of yeshivas that were already begun in this time. RJJ, Rabbi uh, Jacob Joseph, uh, yeshiva in the Lower East Side already existed since the early 1900s. Torah Vadas and Yeshivas Chaim Berlin uh, were formed and strengthened in the 1920s in New York. Um, the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago was the first yeshiva outside of the New York area in 1921. So you already are beginning to develop that which is necessary um, for when the Jews are going to come in mass after the war. Things are already in place and they've had time to, uh, to develop. Uh, Reb Shraga Feivel Mendelovich uh, arrives in the early 1920s, was a major figure in the, uh, in the New York scene. He eventually comes and takes over at Torah Vidas. He leads that yeshiva. And many of his students will not necessarily found, but will become major players of the nucleus of other yeshivas, which will sprout up around the country. Tells yeshiva in Cleveland, there is Charlotte in Baltimore, and the base medrash, of course, Gavoa in Lakewood. All of them, I'm not saying that his students founded them, but they were, he created a yeshiva, and then they went out and began to uh, populate, uh, teach, 
and uh, really strengthen other yeshivas that began to spring up around uh, the country. Now, the main competition to the conservative JTS was the Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Theological Seminary, which was under the leadership of Rabbi Bernard Revel in New York. This uh, REITS, which it, was, it is still known as today, eventually evolves into Yeshiva University. And this idea that Rabbi Revel had was to be an orthodox version of what conservative Judaism was doing. Meaning the yeshivas that we just mentioned were yeshivas. They looked at everything going on in, in, in America and said, Feh, that's not how we do things. We're yeshivas. And they, they were yeshivas. Uh, the, of course, the conservative movement had a seminary which was blending the two and was compromising on all of the ideals. And Rabbi Revel said, we need to combat that which is going on, but it needs to be orthodox. It needs to remain true to Torah ideals. This, of course, is going to eventually develop, as I mentioned, the Yeshiva University and Torah Umada. Uh, the combination of what, what eventually today will be known as modern orthodoxy, which was not the name that it was known as uh, then. And uh, that was a, uh, a, a radical idea to, to combine the two, to remain orthodox, to remain true to halach in every way, and to embrace a secular education on, on uh, some level. And uh, as all things like this are, he faced very fierce criticism from within orthodoxy because orthodox, again, there, there was no camp of modern orthodoxy. It was, the, it was yeshivas, it was the, the Yidin from Europe, and it was conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism. So this idea, trying to balance the two, uh, was not readily, uh, not readily acceptable, accepted. Also during this time, um, the Orthodox Union, the OU, and the Young Israel Movement, which had been founded earlier, the OU already in 1898, Young Israel in 1912, but it's in the 1920s that they both really take hold and begin to have a major impact, as Jewish education was uh, low on the Jews' list of priorities. Again, the, the Orthodox community is small, but there's a massive community of, what's, of Jews who are uh, acclimating themselves very well and assimilating, and the list of Jewish education was not high in their prior. What was high on the priority list was integration. That's what they wanted. And what was going to be with all of these Jews? Um, and the youth that was growing up now in America were not necessarily Yiddish speaking. They may have heard it in their home, but they were growing up in an English uh, in an English language, and they were very much shut out of the old world style Yiddish shul. The, the Yiddish shul was a, it was a shtibel from Europe that was now in America, and an American kid growing up. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a mix. My, my father still tells stories. This is years later. This is growing up in the, in the 50s and in the early 60s already of, uh, of the Stiebloch in Flatbush and in Borough Park that an American kid growing up, my, he's like, he was like reliving this whole thing. He was, you know, grew, grew up in the, in the States. So a little baby when he arrived here, four or five years old, a little child, young child, and, and his, my grandparents, the Kron of Racha, were European survivors, and the Stiblach that they davened in was a European Stiebel. And, and I, he still, like, the, he, like, can't find your place. It just doesn't, it was such a culture clash. So the OU and the Young Israel began uh, encouraging shuls that would give drushas in English. This was revolutionary in the 1920s to give a Shabbos drasha in English. It's like, unfin- who speaks English? You know, the Goyim speak in English. We're going to give a drasha in English? In, in Ner Yisrael, in the yeshiva, I got there in 1998. I got there. And the, my, the Rebbe that I had 
was the first Rebbe to give shir in English in Ner Yisrael. I had him already at the end of his life. He passed away four or five years after I got to the yeshiva. He was the Rebbe who gave the first English shir in the yeshiva. 20, 30 years prior. So nineteen six. It, it, that's the way it was. So if you didn't speak Yiddish, there was, you, were, you didn't have a way. So why did he switch? Because the boys didn't understand Yiddish as well anymore. So they, they, by the time, the, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, the kids growing up were English speakers. But, um, so this was going on in the 1920s, where they were revolutionary. Young Israel, OU, were trying to revolutionize the, the shuls to allow in the youth, give them a place. Uh, they would have communal prayer, a song, lectures in English, shiurim in English. All of this was, uh, they prohibited in, in some of the shuls. Uh, on the, if you look at the, uh, the National Council of Young Israel on their website, and you look at their history, which I did in, in preparation, they take credit for banning the auctioning off of honors in shul. In order to engage the youth, they did away with you know, selling aliyahs and selling the kibudim. We're going to give them out in order to engage. And so, like, the things we deal with today, 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years later, it's the same story of the old guard and the new kids and the new generation. The, the details change what the old guard needs and what the old generation wants and what the youth... But the story of, of the transition from the, what, what was as to what is and to what will be is, a, is an old story. But this was going on already in the 1920s as, uh, as such. Another major factor that impacted the Orthodox world uh, during this time is that many European gedolim, the great leaders of the European cities, began to travel to the U.S. post-World War I to fundraise, to fundraise and to recruit students. Again, European Jewry was a mess, and so the, the great leaders would actually come to the States. That interface that the American Jewish community had with the leaders of European Jewry, uh, Rav Cook came here, m- many of the, uh, of the leaders from Europe uh, you know, came, but... Uh, and there are many stories of, of them traveling around. Um, and not only did they succeed in recruiting boys back to the European yeshivas, and who, many of whom returned to the U.S. before World War II and led many communities after having been educated um, in Europe, uh, had also a major impact on the uh, American communities. Uh, next, Hollywood. This really requires so much time, and I don't, I don't have the expertise uh, or the time, but the Jewish relationship to Hollywood in the early 1900s uh, had a, is a major, major development. In Europe, the talented Jew who was talented in music and singing and acting, whatever it was, had a really complicated relationship with arts and entertainment. Sometimes they were accepted, sometimes they weren't. They certainly couldn't be accepted as an open Jew. Um, but in the U.S., uh, the U.S., they had an opportunity, an opportunity to express themselves. Um, and in effect, the U.S. Jews created Hollywood. It's a stereotype, but it's actually true. It's not just a, uh, a made-up uh, anti-Semitic comment. They did. Uh, if you want to see an interesting book, uh, Neil Gabler uh, wrote an entire book, An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Created Hollywood, detailing all of this. Um, and more than any other social force, Hollywood is going to form the general American opinion, as media always does. And so if the Jews controlled media, which they actually did, then you're going to control the thought process. You're going to control the template of society um, uh, and, and they were, had a very uh, inf- a major influence on assimilating the Jewish community because the leaders of Hollywood, that's all they wanted to do. Almost all of the studios were headed by immigrant Jews. Adolf Zucker uh, created Paramount um, Studios. William Fox, of course, created what's today known as 20th Century Fox. 
Carl Lamel, another Jew, created Universal Studios. Harry, Sam, Albert, and Jack Warner, of course, created Warner Brothers. And as well as the largest studio was Metro Goldwyn Mayer, which was created by three Jews as well. They literally were running almost all of the studios in, uh, in Hollywood. And what united them was an utter and absolute rejection of their past together with an equal devotion to American Jewish simulation. That was the theme. They wanted nothing to do with the Altaheim, nothing to do with the Jew of old, and they were going to create not just the new Jewish values, the U.S. values, all of the myths, all of the famous movies of that era, the traditions, the stereotypes, and a Jew would always be portrayed as anachronistic, foreign, threatening, doomed, no place in America's future. And this was the... This, everybody was moviegoers in those days. And this is, that was the scenes. Those are what they, uh, that's what they saw. But it wasn't only in Hollywood. That requires its own little study. Just as a note, if you're interested in it, there's plenty of what to look up on, uh, on, uh, on the Jewish influence on, uh, on Hollywood. In all other areas of professional life as well, in many other areas, Jews were also getting educated. They were integrating. Uh, for example, Benjamin Cardozo, Louis Brandeis, where they sat on the Supreme Court. Um, and all of this was, they were all a generation ahead of their Holocaust-surviving brethren who would come they would come as immigrants, and there was already now a whole generation there for 20, 30, 40 years of the American Jew who had already become American, and now were integrating their still backwards European brethren as they came out of the war, and they were broken from the war itself, and that created its own dynamic in the States, which, as we've pointed out many times, as much as we glorify the survivor now, and we do and we should, the survivor was not glorified when he came in 1945. It a, it's a harsh reality, but it's a true reality. The survivor was not, they were, they were nebuch, they were broken, they were destitute, they were greener, they still spoke a foreign language, and the, the American community already had assimilated. The American community was already American and uh, didn't want to deal with, uh, with, with the, this burden. And that is a harsh reality that is very much, everyone talks now, uh, survivors, I ask, well, you know, whenever I meet families of survivors that passed away, did your grandparents, or did they speak about the Holocaust government? Never. You know, not until the grandkids came, you know, in the 1970s, then they started talking about, um, and one of the reasons for that was they wanted nothing to do with it. They needed to, it was not like today where they would come and they say, I'm a survivor and then everybody would fawn over them and take care of them. The survivor was, the, you wanted to get away from that. You wanted to assimilate like everybody else because that's, it's the reality. A couple more things and we'll conclude. Anti-Semitism uh, still alive and well. Many of the non-Jewish conservative groups not conservative like conservative Jews, like conservative like politically conservative groups who saw the Roaring Twenties as a disaster, as a cultural disaster, as a moral degenerate generation, which always, every, every generation has its conservative who looks at the new young kids doing whatever crazy things they're doing as a disaster. So many of them blame the Jews for ushering in this entire era, having a lot to do with Hollywood and movies, um, uh, together with the, uh, the Red Scare uh, the first Red Scare uh, was in 18, 1918 and 1919, which was aimed at the communists from Russia. There were, many, there were several Red Scares that happened in the States over the years, all the way through McCarthyism, in which the American people are scared of communism. They're scared they're being infiltrated by the Russian spies. So the very first instance of this was right after the Russian Revolution of 1918. And many of the Jews who immigrated actually were from Russia. And they were blamed as communists. The Jews always blamed them on both sides. The communists blamed them as being from the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks blamed them as being the communists. And when they came to the States, the U.S. conservatives blamed them as being, bringing communism in. 
Um, and the two immigration acts, which again we mentioned a couple weeks ago of 21 and 24, which severely hampered and limited immigration. A lot of that also had to do with trying to keep all of them, uh, Jews amongst them, uh, out of the uh, country. Despite all of this and all of the challenges that were faced by the Jews as they arrive on uh, to the shores of North America, uh, the American Jewish community does become the big, big brother of its European brethren. Um, they emerged, the Jewish community emerged then, and it still plays the role today um, as that big brother. Jewish Europe needs, is desperate for money, they're desperate for logistical support, they're just desperate for technical skills, and just human encouragement. It was a broken, broken society between World War I and World War II, um, and the rep- U.S. reputation for generosity and the ability to help needy brethren worldwide is really established post- post-World War I. That's when the U.S. community becomes and plays that role. There were a couple of uh, aspects of that. Number one, the most famous one is the Joint Distribution Community Committee, uh, which was a major vehicle for support and relief post-World War I. They were actually an amalgamation of three different organizations which had sprouted to try to help the European Jewish community. The American Jewish community was one. The Orthodox had its committee, the Central Committee for Relief, and the Secular Labor, Labor the Bund, they had their own People's Relief Committee, and they combined. They realized at the time that they could get more done together, which is why it was known as the Joint, because there was all of these different committees put together to, to fund and aid and support uh, the European community. They, they funneled millions of dollars in, in that era, which was a, a very significant amount of uh, dollars in food, clothing, medicines, and they were able to do it without dealing with government welfare programs. They, it went from, they figured out a way to transfer money from the U.S. pockets directly to the organizations in Europe uh, which needed, and they were a lifeline. The, the Joint Committee was a massive, massive lifeline in post-war Europe. There was a much smaller organization known as, and if anyone says that the, the Jewish community can't ever get together, the Joint is it's the proof that they were able to get together. But there's always on the outside, Ezra's Torah was a, a union of Orthodox rabbis founded by Richard Rosenberg and administered by Bilyeo Henkin. Uh, this organization, Ezra's Torah, still exists today, and they were focused specifically on the destitute Rabbanim and scholars and the yeshivas of Europe, whereas the joint dealt with the Jewish communities as a whole. Ezra's Torah was very much focused on the Rabbanim and the, uh, the scholars and the yeshivas of Europe to help support uh, them. As much as the, the U.S. community becoming a big brother was a, was a tremendous uh, accomplishment of the U.S. Com- uh, community, there was one major downside which has morphed over the years, and that is that the philanthropy to the European Jew became the new Judaism as the Jew is assimilating and integrating and losing and leaving behind religious observance, the idea of supporting the European Jewish community became almost a religion unto itself. Like, I support the old world. I support the Alta. It's not for me. Um, it's not for my family. But we support Shabbos and Kashros and whatever is necessary. We support that in Europe. We have a Jewish heart. And in doing so, that became a new uh, Judaism, very similar to what Zionism became in the, in the 40s and in the 50s, in which you gave away or gave up on actual religious practice in order to 
supporting the state of Israel became a religion. I don't need to do anything else because I'm a good Jew. I support Israel. So that, early, that had origins already in, in the 20s and 30s, supporting European Jewry. They'll, they'll practice for me. They'll, they keep Shabbos, they keep kosher, and I'll support them. Um, that was the one downside. Um, and uh, we, today it's, it's uh, of note that we see the liberal movement has had such an impact where now already that idea of a Jew supporting Israel as its religion, which at least you had that, and now that's also uh, in great peril because uh, supporting Israel is not in vogue anymore. It's so uh, the secular Jew doesn't necessarily have that on the college campuses for sure, but uh, that's a separate story. In any case, those are some thoughts on what the American scene was like as it relates to our journey towards the statehood. The American scene will always have a major impact on the state of Israel. And, uh, now it's the power shifting, but until at least the last 10, 15 years ago, it was very clear America was, the American Jewish community had a major effect, had a major role to play, and that begins post-World War I as the Europe goes into ruins. Palestine is not quite yet ready to be on its own feet. It's still under the British, of course, and the American community is gaining tremendous strength. Religiously, it was a challenge, but uh, in terms of its influence, it was gaining tremendous strength. We'll pick up Mirza Hashem next week. With our, uh, next week, we're going to do something special for Hanukkah. Next week will be a Hanukkah topic, and then we'll pick up uh, after that with some other uh, history topics. Let's see you all next week.